This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome to Journey of Unity number 10. And so I have to say also that we're coming up to the summer and the schedule may be a little different than every other week. So you're encouraged very strongly to join our WhatsApp group if you have not yet joined. And that will keep you updated with all of the shiurim, what will be happening which week and when we're going to be taking off the summer. Okay. Now, this possibly that we're up to, and this you cited from tonight, um, because we were off the last couple of weeks, my mind has been percolating with this idea for a while. And this last Friday night, I sat with my wife for hours upon hours, like honing a certain, a certain akuda that I want to bring out tonight. Um, which I think is so beautiful, but at the same time, extremely, extremely deep and powerful and maybe not something that everybody could relate to. So hopefully on our own levels, we can take something out of this specific idea. So the Pasuk says, <laughs> What does that mean? It means that the Eish and the they are very proficient at using a loom. So they used to traditionally have a loom. It was probably the centerpiece of the house, like a lot of homes probably had until like the 80s, like a piano maybe as like a grand piano that was like in the middle of their home. So going back in history, a loom was considered like the staple of the home because if you didn't have a loom, you didn't have a lot of clothing. And the wife would sit there every day and she would be weaving clothing. So we already said before that she's Darsha Tzemer Ufishtim, that she already goes out and gets all this flax and all this other stuff, and she turns it into, you know, usable clothing. But here, the Pusik seems almost to be redundant. The Pusik says that she goes ahead with her hands. There's a lot of focus on the hands. She takes her hands, and she operates this loom, and her palms, operates a different part of the loom. So it seems to be that this woman... We already mentioned it vaguely, but now the Pasuk is getting a lot more specific, that she's so proficient in using this loom, and she has it down to like a science with her hands, that she's just an amazing, amazing Asha style. Now, I don't think this Pasuk is really talking so practically in terms of the loom. And we spoke many times in the past, and if you look in all the Mepharshim, that a lot of Asha style, just like a lot of Mishle, which is where Asha style is found, is really Mishalim. It's really coming to you know, teach you something a little bit deeper than you may have seen before. So what is this Pasuk really saying? So if you think about it, there's a concept. The Gemara talks about this idea. Right? Somebody will come to Shemayim. That this person will come to this place. Shemayim. And his learning is in his hand. So there's a focus on means that something is, it's like, it's, it's right in your hand. In the palm of your hand. That's what people say. Like, it's in the palm of my hand. What does that mean? It means that it's, it's so easily here that you've honed something, you've gotten a skill, or perhaps a skill is not just dealing with a loom specifically, but you've, you've honed yourself in your life on something that's a central part of your life. You've honed it to the point where it's, it's at your beck and call. It's at your hand. And this woman is Yadah Shulcha Bakishar. That central part of her life, of her world, that central part of his world, the husband, is yadaha. It's, it's in their hand. And they know which part of the hand to use for this, and which part of the hand to use for this, and which part of the hand to use for the other thing. In which area are we talking? What are we saying? They're, she's very proficient in what? What is this area that we're talking about? So the Medrash says that this Pasuk specifically talks about Ya'el Eishas Hever Hakini. 
this happens to me, my bar mitzvah haftira is the story of Yael. So I'll just give you a bit of the background over here so we understand what we're talking about. The, the history goes was that in the days of the Shaftim, Kal Yisrael sometimes was behaving and sometimes was not behaving. And if you look, you see an ebb and a flow between everything just being very, very peaceful and everything going well versus people standing up to Kal Yisrael and threatening their existence. And it came in the times of Devera, who was in Nevia, right? And people used to come to her and consult with her. And there was this threat from Sisra. So Barak, who was the general, the leader in Kal Yisrael, came to her and said that we have this threat from Sisra. He's amassing a massive army. And I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared to go out to war with him. He's a very mighty war- warrior. So Devera said, let me get my Nevoah. She came back to him and she said, you don't have anything to worry about. You're going to win. And he said, well, that's nice. I appreciate that. But I'm only going out to battle if you agree that you're going to come with me. If you come, I'll go. If you don't agree, then I, I can't. I, I'm very scared. He was really threatened by this Sisra. So the virus said, no problem. I'll come with you. And the reason I'll come with you was because part of my nevuah was that Sisra was going to be vanquished by a woman. So you have nothing to worry about. We'll come. Not only will we win, but a woman is going to actually be the one that's going to kill Sisra. So he said, great. They went out to battle. And in fact, they were very successful. And they killed most of Sisra's army. And Sisra himself dismounted from his horse and he ran away. And he came to the house of Yael, Yael Eshes Chever Hakeni. And it says, Ki Shalim Bein Yavin Melechatzer Ubein Beis Chever Hakeni. There was a special alliance that was going on behind the scenes. And Sisra felt that he would be safe in Yael's house. So he comes to this woman's house. He thinks he's taking refuge. He thinks he's going to hide. And she welcomes him into the home. Now, meantime, in the back of her mind, she realized that she has the guy, the, the FBI's you know, number one most wanted, his, in her tent. So the Gemara talks about it, and really it talks about it in the, the Navi itself. But she did three things. First thing she did was she seduced him. The second thing she did, she gave him milk to drink. And the third thing that she did was she took the peg that held down the tent, the Yasad Ha'ayal, she took that, Biyada, in her hand, okay, and she went to him as he was sleeping, and she knocked it into his head and killed him. A few minutes later, Devira and Barak show up, and they said, did you see anybody here? And she came out and she said, you should know that the man that you're looking for is in my tent, and he's dead. And then they went ahead and they sang a special shira which was the Shira of Devera and Barak, and they sang you know, all about Yal and everything that she had done. And that is why that Haftarah is in Parshish B'Shalach, because there's a Shira over here and a Shira in the Haftarah as well. Now, why did she take this Yesad Ha'ayal, this peg of the tent? Very interesting thing to take. So the Medrash says that when Yael decided that she was going to kill him, she didn't want to be over, right? Interesting words. She didn't want to be either the Isser of Leisobash Gever Simlas Isha, which means that there's a halacha that a man is not allowed to wear or take a woman's clothing, and a woman is not allowed to take man's clothing. It also extends to other things as well. So she had in her house probably a kitchen knife, a challah knife, a butter knife. So let's assume she wasn't going to use a butter knife to try to kill this mighty warrior. Let's assume she was going to take like a nice challah knife, right? She didn't want to. She didn't want to take a sword and just lop off his head. She didn't want to. At this critical moment, with everything going on, she says to herself, 
I cannot be over the iser of I can't be wearing men's clothing. I can't be taking something which is for a man. I can't do it. Instead, she goes outside. She walks around the tent. She pulls out one of the pegs, walks inside. He's sleeping. She takes a very risky move. She puts it on his head, right? And then you have to like bang it in. And she like bangs it into his head and he dies. Very risky move, right? I would imagine that it was probably easier for her to take a sword and just lop off his head. No, she didn't do that. Why? Because she was very, very concerned for Loi Silbash, like right at this critical moment. Like, what's going on over here? What is this real story? So it got me thinking, <coughs> excuse me, it got me thinking on a specific part of this story. If you think about what Yael did, she killed somebody, obviously. But in, in, in many senses, there were three things that she did, right? There was an act of seduction. There was giving over milk. And then she killed him. And if you break down all three of those actions, in a certain sense, she was highlighting something here, which really the, the Navi highlights before, which is that this Sisra was going to be killed by a woman. There was a very strong emphasis on the femininity, right? Seduction, femininity, milk, fem- femininity, right? And then it comes down to the actual act of murder itself. And she says, I cannot perform this action the way a man would do this. I have to highlight my femininity. Very interesting. Why? So I think that the words, and, and Chazal talk about this, the words lie in the word, Yisad Ha'ayah. She took, it doesn't say she took a peg. It says she took the Yisad Ha'ayah, literally the foundation of her home. And I think that there's a very strong correlation here between what she had done and highlighting really for all of us a very, very distinct message, which is that you should understand that femininity, and when we talk about femininity, men have femininity as well. The feminine side of things is not the drive. It's the receptivity. It's the emotion. It's the connection. And she understood that when it comes to this specific yisayit in marriage, emotions equals the yisayit ha'ayil the foundation of your home. And therefore she said, when it comes to femininity, I, I must act in a feminine way. I, I have to hold literally in my hand. It says that she took it in her hand. Why in her hand? Because yadaha shelcha Because ashimi It's literally in your hand. Your femininity, your emotion, your ability to navigate the emotions in your home are literally, literally in your home. In your hand. And when you have it in your hand and you're able to navigate those emotions successfully, then you should understand that you're building your home. But if you don't know how to navigate your emotions successfully, if you don't know how to accept or give criticism, if you don't know how to have a good argument or a good fight, if you don't know how to actually have a deep emotional connection with somebody else, then you should understand that the Yisaita Ayal, the foundation of your home, is in jeopardy. To, to say this a little simpler, of all the couples I've ever dealt with, and I could count, it's probably thousands of couples at this point. There's one couple that sticks out for me that there was one comment that was made. That comment triggered an avalanche of emotion and the entire home, the entire marriage dissolved in a matter, not even hours, mamish in a matter of minutes. And the whole thing just fell apart. It was like, what happened here? It was a comment. That comment went ahead and created a spiral and everything just went out of control very, very quickly. 
for most couples, that's not usually the case. For most couples, it's a series of emotional moments. It's a series of comments. And those comments either bring together something, they create an emotional foundation, or they slowly chip away at that emotional foundation. Like somebody has a child and you tell that child a million times how, wow, you're so smart and I'm so proud of you and you're the man and you're amazing. You slowly but surely build up that child over a number of years. If you slowly criticize and you slowly tell your child, you know, how dumb they are and I can't believe you did that and you're so stupid, those little words, it's not one time, it's not a bulldozer that goes and crashes it down, but you slowly chip away at that foundation. And when you chip away at that foundation, that child realizes when they're 20 years old, oh my gosh, I'm so insecure about myself. Oh my gosh, I have no self, self-esteem. I have no confidence. Why not? Because somebody slowly chipped away at who you are. The Yisada oil, the foundation of a home, the foundation of building up each other is emotions. Femininity, the concept of connection. Men have this. Women have this. Hashem has this, right? We you know in Chazal even talks about how the Shekhinah, there's the masculine side, there's, there's the feminine side. We all have the dominant stuff, the stuff that we give out and then the stuff that is receptive. And therefore, she goes ahead and she says, at this moment in time, when I'm about to perform an act of murder, I have to do it. Claudius Charles' fate literally lies in the balance. If I don't kill this guy, he'll get up, he'll run away, or he'll kill me. He'll raise a new army and he'll come threaten Claudius Charles again. She had to do it. She said, I have to hold in my hand the Yisad Ha'ayl as a reminder, as a reminder that even when an action has to be done, even when words have to be said, even when criticism has to be given, never, never, never forget that you're holding in your hand the Yisad Ha'ayl. Literally at that moment, she says, I, I have to put it into my hand. And I have to remember right now, you should know I have to do this. But the Yisad Ha'ayl, don't forget that you can be breaking down the foundation of your home, even though you have to make this comment, even though you have to say this, even though you have to give this criticism, don't forget what you hold in your hand. Very, very powerful way of framing the story. It's not as simple as something happened there and she was a nice lady and she did something. In fact, the Gemara actually criticizes her. There's different shitas. The Gemara actually criticizes her for some of the actions that she took. But at the end of the day, she saved Kali Yisrael and she sends a very important message. Don't ever, ever forget that femininity, connection, motion is the Yisad Ha'ayo. You can never forget that. And one more thing which struck me. Because I lean this, it says, <clears throat> let's uh, gargle some eggs over here. It says that she, t- um, Vatikach Yael. It says, Vatikach Yael, Eishas Chever. Right as she's about to perform this action, it like really highlights her husband. Her husband's name wasn't necessary for this part of the story. Her husband could have been mentioned in the beginning when he was. Because the Navi had to tell you that the reason why sister came to this house was because Yael was Eishas Chaver, and Chaver had a family connection. But over here, when she's about to kill him, we know who she is already. It should have just said that Yael goes ahead and kills him. No. There's like a very like big emphasis that she reminds herself that I am Eishas Chaver. When you're doing something, when you're about to perform an act, when you're about to give criticism, don't forget, you're Eishas Chaim, right? Your husband's name is Chaim. I'm Eishas Chaim. I'm Eishas Moshe. This is who my wife is. This is who my son is. You're about to criticize your child. I'm his father. There's like an emphasis on who you are, even when you have to take action, which is going to, 
like it's going to hurt the person. I have to give corrective action. I have to say something. Nevertheless, don't ever forget who you are within the story. Never forget who you are within the story. I got a call just to share with you. <coughs> excuse me, a very interesting call I got from somebody who told me, you know, there's these videos that are going out around from Baimain, right? It's like taking the world by storm, these videos. They're like very, very well done, very well produced, really incredible videos. And this person called me up. My phone was ringing, ringing, ringing. I picked the phone and I said, can I help you? And this person said, I, ha- I have to tell you, I-, I literally caught myself. I'm about to do a terrible thing. And they explained what they were about to do. And they said, but these Vayimayin videos, I just saw one and it's playing in my mind. And it's literally reminding me, like, remember who you are, like, like who you are. And the fact that you could be destroying your home by doing this action. And I'm literally gripped over here. I'm stuck between like my Yitzhahara and my Yitzhahara. I'm being pulled. On the one hand, the Vayimayin video is pulling me. And on the other hand, like, I'm about to do something that I feel like I can't hold myself back. And we like schmoozed it through. And Baruch Hashem's person, you know, pick the right choice. And it was amazing to me that you don't think like videos, you know, it's a video, very nice. Not just a video. It's a reminder. It's not just a medrash. It's a reminder. The reminder is who are you and what power do you have in your hand? The power to build your home, the power to destroy your home literally lies in your home, in your hand. And when you remind yourself who you are, what your role is, what your obligation is, that's very, very powerful. So the past Friday night, I was sitting with my wife and I was moving through this, this idea. And again, I have to acknowledge that it's a very, it's a very hard idea. And I said this over to a group of people and literally I was watching like Jaws hitting the table as people were internalizing their own struggles in this idea. I think that we could agree <laughs> that of all the emotional elements within marriage, we could talk about love, security. I think we could talk about all those things. I think we would all agree that being accepted is one of the foundational emotions within any relationship. If you think about grief, grief has like five stages of grief, right? Where somebody says like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe what, what, what's happening. There's the anger. There's the denial. You know, there's like five stages, right? There's bargaining, there's depression, and then there's acceptance. The final level is acceptance. final level to many things is acceptance. Within marriage also, it's not just that people want to feel loved. They want to feel understood, right? They want to feel accepted. They, they, they want to feel secure. There's a lot of emotions that go into relationship. I don't know if anybody knows that, but shocker. Like, you know, it's kind of an emotional, you know, function, right? Now, within that structure, what I find is that many people, they want to be accepted and they want in many ways to accept their spouse. Now, if, if I were to draw a line and say to you that your interactions with your spouse or your children, okay, are either going to be full acceptance on the one hand or on the other hand, not acceptance. There's black and white. For this exercise, we're going to be black and white, okay? It's not like, oh, yeah, no. On the right side is acceptance, and on the left side is non-acceptance. Now, think through every time you made a comment. I'm not even talking a heavy comment. I'm talking about a comment that 
communicated the emotion that I did not accept you. It could be a simple comment like, how did you get up late today? Or why didn't you call me? Or I can't believe you forgot to pick that up. It could be small. I don't mean not accepting as in I need a divorce. I mean not accepting as in if I were to break off this story, it was either true acceptance, true acceptance. I mean like in the bones acceptance. Like I completely accept you with your shortcoming, with your faults, with with all the things that go into like a person's mind that you don't like. And a lot of times we bite our tongues and we don't say something. But think about this. Think about, you don't even have to think about the last week. Think about the last day. How many comments did you make to, your, to somebody in your family of something that you communicated that you did not fully accept them? Okay, black and white. I think most people would agree that it was once, twice, three times, right? Let's say it was once, right? That means that over the course of a year, over 300 times that you communicated to your spouse, I do not accept you. You say, well, come on. But yeah, I, I do really accept them, except a, a lot of things about them. I mean, I, I accept all the other stuff, all the stuff that I do accept. And I even tell them how much I accept. True. But you also chip away a little bit by telling them, I don't accept what time you get up. I don't accept what time you go to sleep. I don't accept that you picked up your phone. I don't accept that you didn't call me. I don't accept that you didn't give me everything that I need. I don't, I don't accept that you don't learn enough. I don't, concept, I don't accept that you got angry now. I don't accept that you have this emotional need. We don't say those words ever because we sound like crazy people. We would never talk like that, right? So we just say it very, very nicely. We package our emotions in very sweet words. We put it in a box. They open it up and it blows up in their face. But what are we really saying to them? We're saying to them, I don't accept you in a black and white world, right? Think about it. I said this to a, to a group, the people, like their jaws were on the table. They were like, oh my gosh, literally told my, my wife a thousand times over the last year that I don't accept her. But if you think about it, that's what we're doing, right? We're communicating to them, I do not accept you. And I find with so many couples, when I sit with them and I talk about either acceptance or, or respect, that they, they, they say the words, of course I respect it. And I'll tell you what I respect about my spouse. And they give me a whole list of things that they respect, which is true. They do respect many things. But the respect is not through and through. It's not in their bones. It's not in their bones. It's not like deep in their bones. That when their spouse does something that's slightly off or whatever the case may be, they, they have a hard time with it. They have a hard time with it. And they say something. But you know what's amazing? Is that the same thing that they're saying today, they said yesterday and the day before. And 10 years ago, and 15 years ago, and 30 years ago, you're saying the same thing. And miraculously, nothing's changing. It's unbelievable. So we're slowly chipping away and saying, I don't accept you. But there's a reason why I say I don't accept you and why I'm sending you this emotional package that blows up in your face. There's a reason because I love you and I'm trying to get you to change somehow. Yeah, that's very, very nice. But for somehow, some reason, it's not actually changing the person. I, I saw this story. I thought it was a very amazing story. It's nothing to do with marriage, but I think it, it highlights this idea. There was a Rosh Hashiva from Marriage Israel who for a couple of years was really trying to get into a very wealthy man in Chicago. And he finally, finally got a meeting with him. Like you could come Tuesday night, this wealthy individual is going to meet with you, sit down with you. And he wrote them a letter. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And they were communicating back and forth. And he said, you know, I would like to receive from you like 
you know, basically like $36,000. That's what I'm coming to ask for. And they had gone back and forth for a long time. Finally, he got his appointment. He goes ahead and he books his flight. And the secretary booked him with a stopover in France. Very short stopover, a couple hours. He stops over in France. And then he's going to Chicago. On a stopover in France, he realizes that he needs to go ahead and daven chakras. And there's a shul that's like not too far from the airport. So he goes ahead, he daven chakras. And when he comes in, there's a guy who gets up to daven for the Amr, and this guy is going painfully slow. Women do not understand this, this Nisayan. It is a real Nisayan, okay? And this guy is slowly, slowly dominating. And the Rosh Hashiva is looking at his clock, and he realizes that he has to make his flight. And he also realizes that there's only 10 men in this minion. And this old man who's dominating for the Amr has Yardzai, and he can't, like, replace him. So he's literally just stuck at this minion. Finally, 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 they finish davening. This guy bolts out of the door. He runs to the airport. And by the time he makes it there, they told him, I'm sorry, the doors are closed. You missed your flight. So he calls his secretary. Then the secretary says, okay, it is what it is. I'll book you a flight back to Israel. Okay, there's a flight back in eight hours. So he says, okay, what should I do for eight hours? He figures he'll go back to the shul and he'll sit down, he'll learn. So he goes back to the shul and he sits down. And as he's sitting down in the shul, there's a guy who comes into the shul and he realizes from this guy's talis bag that this guy happens to be an extremely, extremely wealthy individual. So he walks over to him and he says, hello, how are you? Um, and the guy says, oh, very nice. And they start strike up a conversation. And this wealthy individual tells him, you know, I'm in town because I have, I believe, a grandson's bris and I'm serving as kvater and therefore I just flew in. And, you know, you mentioned that you have a yeshiva. I think, you know, because I'm going to be kvater and because whatever, I think it would be very nice if I dedicated something in the schluss of this baby. So he says, you know, can I, can I get a dedication in your yeshiva for $70,000? So he says, $70,000, he got a deal. Okay, so the guy gives him a check and saves him the trip to Chicago. He gets on the flight and he goes back home. As soon as he gets back, there's a message on his answering machine. And it's from the guy in Chicago. And his secretary says, Rabbi, whatever, I'm calling to tell you, I really apologize, but at the last minute, we have to cancel. I really hope you didn't get on the flight because, he, you know, this wealthy man had to go out of town and he, he can't meet with you. I'm really sorry. But instead of you flying out here, we're just going to send you the $36,000. Okay? So that's the story. Now, in most of our worlds, Within that story, right, if we missed our flight, if we were stuck in a minion, if everything was ping pong back and forth, it would be extremely hard for us. It would be extremely hard for us to have true acceptance. It would. We would have a very, very hard time really being accepting of the circumstances that Hashem threw to us. But now when we say the story or we read the story, <laughs> we say to ourselves, what do you mean? It's Hashkach Pratis. It's from the Abishter. This is what Hashem wanted for us. You see, everything came together. Not only did it come together, but the guy made an extra $70,000 for his yeshiva. Right? Think through the story. If he would have made the flight, he would have gotten whatever, nothing. Maybe he would have gotten his $36,000. He made an extra $70,000 for the yeshiva. Incredible story, right? So when we take a step back, it's very easy for us to have like that Ebmuna and that Bitachan, that this is what Hashem wanted. This is where Hashem wanted you. Every nuance of the story, this guy who's grandfather died a hundred years ago and he davened for the Ahmed and the fact that he was in France that day and he decided to daven, all the pieces came together Litaiva, right? For the good of this yeshiva and this Rosh Yeshiva. All the pieces of the story. It wasn't just like in a general sense, it was every single part of the story. 
But then we get married. And then within the context of marriage, we say, yes, thank you, Hashem, for sending me this spouse. In a general sense, I, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay, but what about when you break it down on the micro level, all the parts of them, this spouse that Hashem sent you, who is a little bit angry sometimes, and who doesn't get up at the time that you want, and who sometimes has a hard time regulating their emotions, and et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we don't accept about it, what happens to our amuna? What happens to our bitachan? What happens? It, 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 it goes. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, it's, it's here for the time when I see at the end of the day, yeah, that's when it's there. And the challenge that I would lay forth is I think that a big part of it is that we put it into our hands and we actually say the words out loud, at least to ourselves. Because I, I was telling my wife that I think so much of our emotional frustration is that we know we have emotion. We think we're emotionally aware, but we're only aware of the fact that we have emotion. We're not fully aware of the emotion that we're doing. And therefore, there's a resistance to something because we know that there's an emotion. So we go, I'm very emotionally aware. We all say that. I'm very emotionally aware. Yeah, you're aware that you have emotion. You're aware that you feel emotional. But if you understood the emotion that you're actually conveying at this moment, it would completely change what's really going on. If you said to yourself, every time you say a comment to your child or to your spouse, I right now was not accepting of this, of something that I should be accepting because I keep trying to say something and it's just absolutely not changing them. I'm trying and trying and trying. It's not changing them. You will, you will realize how not accepting you are. That's called really being emotionally aware, that you're aware of your emotion. You're aware of what you're communicating to other people. It's in your hand. And I think that this first step of really getting people to change or forget even trying to change them. The first step of building a home, building a foundation of a home is really in your bones, accepting and respecting the person that you're married to. I think that's number one. And I think that number two is that if you do need to say something, if there's a time, if there's a Pesach, there's an opening, now there's something that, that needs to be said, which every couple needs to say something to each other. And every parent needs to turn to their child and be machanach them. You don't just accept your child and say, the world will raise you. You're not being raised by wolves, being raised by parents. So you do have a Pesach to say something. But, but Bechinach is not criticism. Chinuch is building, right? Chinuch is packaging emotion to your child where you're building your child. You're sending them along the path of life. In the same way you build your child, you don't just criticize them to death. You don't just keep chipping away at them until they fall apart and say, wow, I was the great, world's greatest machana. They used to think that, you know, like the more you smack your kids, the more you beat them down. Wow, that, I'm a great machana. You're not a great machana. You're a tyrant. That's not called chinuch. Anybody understands that. There was a tekufa in the yeshiva system that maybe certain people didn't chop that. But overall, I think most people now realize that that's not called chinuch. That's called a Rebbe with an anger problem, right? But it, why is it any different than in our own homes? where it's Tati with an anger problem or mommy with emotional dysregulation. Why is it any different? It's not any different. If you're going to say something, my argument is, is that it has to be packaged. It has to be packaged on the back of true acceptance and true, true, true respect in your bones. And until you could say to yourself, I truly accept and respect my spouse for who they are. If you can't say those words, then you have no right going to step number two. Because the same way, the concept of of giving rebuke, of building somebody, of correcting somebody, 
is really built on the back of I love you, I cherish you, I'm trying to help you. If that's not really what you're doing with your spouse, so then you have no right to say anything. Gemara says that. You're not allowed to say anything. The same way you're not allowed to give criticism, same way you have a mitzvah to give criticism when it will be heard, you have a mitzvah not to give criticism when it will not be heard. And this is not criticism. I'm going to call this corrective action, where you say to your spouse, like, wow, you're amazing. You know what would be great for us? It would be amazing for us if we spent a little bit more time. The words you'll say, the emotion you'll communicate will come out so much different. It's really packaged in true love because I really am trying to help you. I'm not trying to not accept you. I do accept you. But in order to help further you within the context of marriage, here's what I think our relationship needs. You're not going to be heavy. You're not going to be somebody who's critical. I, I once had a woman, she came to my office with her husband. She started talking. She literally had 50 points about her husband and every point was correct. She was right on every single point. Her husband had real struggles and issues that was like hurting their marriage. And I was like writing my notes and I, I like looked at this list and I, like I keep turning. It's like the list keeps going on and on. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this woman really has legitimate concerns, like real, like real tightness, like real issues with her husband. And, and I asked him to go out for a minute and I said to the wife, you know, you really have a lot of things here. This is like legitimately concerning all these things that your husband needs to work on. I just have one question for you. What is it like to be married to you? What is it like to be married to you? And she burst out crying. She was like, I'm the worst wife in the world. I'm the worst wife in the world. She's like, I, I, I'm terrible. You're, she was 100% right. And every single thing she brought up, her husband's not changing for her. Her husband's not changing for somebody who doesn't accept him, for somebody who's heavy, for somebody who's always screaming and yelling. The foundation of a home is that there's a home. There's no home. What are you fighting for? If there's no love, if there's no acceptance, if there's no respect, what are you fighting for? You're not fighting for anything. So the husband is like, I'm out. I'd rather be at the office, at the gym. I'd rather be eating chocolate at three o'clock in the morning with a bunch of over, overweight guys in, in one of these delis somewhere, you know, on a Thursday night because it's, it's more fun than being at home with my family. Naba, naba. That, that's not life. That's, that, that's, that's, that's so, that's, that's dysfunction. That's like, like a bowl of chocolate is more enjoyable than like your family. It doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry if somebody's offended by that comment, but. It just doesn't make any sense. The corrective action could be given, but only if the corrective action is given on a real foundation of love and respect and acceptance. And if it's not, then work on your love and your trust and your acceptance. Build it. Make sure it's really real. Which leads me to the third part of this, which is that if somebody actually went through step number one, which by the way, could take you a lifetime, and then you got to step number two, and you tried the corrective action, and you realize that it didn't work. So either you need to go back to step number one because the person doesn't feel whatever it is, or you need to realize that maybe this is the person I married. Maybe this is your child. Maybe your child is not as into sports as you want them to be. They're not as strong a learner as you want them to be. They're not as talented as you want them to be. They don't play piano the way you want them to be. They, they don't have all the exact, things that fit into your vision for how you wanted your child to be. Accept your child. It's not going to help them to beat them up, to beat them down, to force them. The radical acceptance, the full acceptance, which I would call stage number three, 
You have a right to say something. You have a right to be machana for your children. You have to have a voice in your marriage. The voice has to be coming with love. The voice has to be coming with respect. But if that voice doesn't work for some reason, whatever reason, you're not going to necessarily change your spouse tonight, tomorrow. You're not going to do that. It's going to be a very, very, very slow process where people slowly grow and change and metamorphosize. Takes years and decades within your own life. Ask yourself, what, what was the last thing I changed? Nobody changed from yesterday to today. You don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm a different person. Very few people do that. Change takes years. You look back over 10 years and say, how am I different from 10 years ago? And then you notice all the areas that you're different. But we turn to the people around us and we expect that change to happen in 10 minutes. It doesn't go that way. The acceptance of who your spouse is, that third level, I'll call that the radical acceptance. The radical acceptance of understanding that not always do you have to say something. Not always does that comment have to be made. Not always is it worth your while to go there and try to change your spouse. Because in many, many ways, Hashem gave you the right spouse. And he gave you a spouse who in the ultimate, in the long run, is really going to be there for your benefit. They will challenge you. It will help you work on a lot of different areas of your personality. It'll help ground you. The difference is if you accept them for who they are, will really make you into a better person. I had a couple, and I'll end with this. I had a couple that came to me the night before their wedding. And they came in, they had a lot of issues during their engagement. And we sat down and we went through all the various parts of the issues that were there. And I told this couple, you're making a decision now for the rest of your life. You're walking down the aisle tomorrow. I have one thing that I want to tell you. And this is how I think you should make your determination. If you can both have the maturity of recognizing that all your questions and concerns are valid, but they will serve you well. Understanding that Hashem made this person like this and this person like this, and they're very different and their family is different and the expectations and the whole thing. If you can accept that Hashem gave you the right spouse and there's going to be a journey here of like self-discovery and the greatest, you know, correction course, if you want to call it, in, in the history of your life, then you should get married tomorrow. But if you cannot fully accept it, then I don't think you should get married. The couple, we were there for a very long time. The couple decided to get married. And about six months, there was a lot of work that went in during the six months. But by around the six month mark, I sat down with them and we had a conversation. They both said that this marriage, the union of marriage, the self-development that happened throughout the course of this six months was equivalent to more than 10 years of therapy, what they got out of it. If we stop fighting our spouses, we stop trying to correct them and change them and bully them and put them down, which nobody here thinks that they do. Nobody thinks that they do, but we do. We do all the time. We do not accept them for who they are. We do not fully accept our children for who they are. We have little things that need to change. and if it comes from a righteousness that, well, this is what has to be said, and this is what I have to do, don't forget that right in your hand is the Yisada Ayal, the foundation of your home. And every time you raise your, you raise your voice, every time you get angry, any time the emotional equilibrium in your home gets thrown off, remember that you're literally holding the foundation of your home in your hand. It's usually not going to crack with one crack of the bat. It's usually going to be little chips that are going to slowly disintegrate. 
And when those chips disintegrate, change is the last thing that's happening. If you want real change, if you want real wholesomeness, if you want real something real in your home, you want a real home, the way that it's built is on femininity, which is receivership, which is acceptance, which is real, real, real connection to somebody else. And if you're able to master these three steps, send me an email and I guarantee you we're not going to be getting too many emails because I know that this is a very, very, um, I, I know how difficult this is. I know how difficult this is, but I figured it's good I to speak this all out. All right, Scott. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.